Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Patton-Rogers. This is Warfare, and I have some news. After an amazing three years and hundreds of episodes, the Warfare podcast is coming to an end. I always say it's a true joy to present this podcast. I've learned so much over the years from our expert guests, but all good things must come to an end, and it's time for me to take a break from podcasting. I've just moved to the US to start a new job, and my wife and I are excitedly expecting a baby very soon. But of course, it won't be the last year hear from me. So now is the time, if you haven't already, to drop me a follow on Instagram at James Rogers History. This just leaves me to say a massive thank you to the excellent History Hit team for their hard work over the years. To Sophie, who started the podcast with me, to James and Dan, who commissioned it, to Steve, who runs all the podcasts at History Hit, to Aidan, who helps edit it, and to Elena and Annie, who basically run the entire show, working tirelessly to produce and edit the episodes that have allowed us to reach 180 countries worldwide. And of course, my final thanks goes to all of you. Thank you for your emails, for your support, for your suggestions, and it's been a pleasure to meet so many of you around the world in person. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and maybe like me, you've even learned a thing or two and discovered a new history along the way. I hope you'll join me on my next chapter. Our last episode will air in a couple of weeks on September 4th, and up until then, we have amazing content. So enjoy these episodes, enjoy our vast back catalogue, enjoy all the other History Hit podcasts, and especially enjoy today's episode. Thank you all so much. The infamous violence in Rwanda during the 1990s has long been a reminder of how quickly social divides can turn into a brutal genocidal slaughter. In fact, in just 100 days in 1994, an estimated 500,000 to 1 million people were slaughtered by the ethnic Hutu extremists. But who were the Hutu targeting and why? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And for this episode, I've invited Dr. Aaron Jesse onto the podcast. Dr. Jesse is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Glasgow and is author of Negotiating Genocide in Rwanda The Politics of History. A true expert on this topic, together we discuss the long history of social division in the country, the impact of colonial control throughout the 20th century, and the eruption of violence that led to the worst genocide of the 1990s, a genocide that unsurprisingly continues to impact the people of Rwanda to this day. Erin, welcome to Warfare. Take us back, if you can, deep into the history of Rwanda. When did the seeds of this division start in the country? 
Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And there's actually quite a bit of historical debate around this very issue. I mean, genocide, obviously, it's a very particular type of political violence. And it's rooted in a number of different things that grew up internally within Rwanda, but were also internationally influenced. I think the big thing that often gets pointed to in a lot of the literature is, is the importance of ethnicity specifically for the atrocities in 1994. As you mentioned, you know, this is a genocide in which a group of extremists associated with the nation's ethnic Hutu majority attempted to annihilate the nation's ethnic Tutsi minority population. And one of the things that is often sort of pointed to as a precursor to the genocide is the way that ethnicity in Rwanda came to be understood. Obviously, there's these terms Hutu and Tutsi. There's also a third ethnic minority in the country known as the Batwa, who are very rarely spoken about in relation to even the genocide, let alone other aspects of the nation's history. But, you know, in the literature, often the way that ethnicity is presented is though as though it was the sole sort of driving force of the genocidal violence, when in reality, um, this was a really, really complex moment in Rwandan history. Ethnicity was very important, obviously, but there were also a lot of things happening politically, socially, economically within the country that made the genocide possible. But as I mentioned, one of the things that often people will start with in speaking about the genocide and the reason why it happened is this idea that ethnicity was something that was kind of introduced to the country by the Belgian, the German colonizers before them, by European missionaries who were trying to convert the country to especially Roman Catholicism, though there were other sort of religious organizations involved as well. And it sort of goes back to this idea that prior to Rwanda's colonial period, these ideas, these terms, Hutu and Tutsi and Twa, existed within the country, but they existed primarily as indicators of a person's socioeconomic status. And at least between the Hutu and the Tutsi, they were also regarded as fluid. So, for example, if a person lived primarily through subsistence farming, they would be seen as a Hutu. Whereas if they survived primarily through pastoralism, through herding cattle in particular, they'd be seen as Tutsi, right? And the idea then being that over time, if a person became very wealthy in cattle and land, you know, to raise cattle, they could become a Tutsi. And likewise, if they fell from favor, if a disaster or something wiped out their cattle herds, they could become a Hutu, right? So there's kind of that mobility. But what happened when the colonial period began in Rwanda is that the German and Belgian colonizers sort of looked at this general population in front of them and they recognized these terms Hutu and Tutsi, but because of the way that they thought they perceived certain morphological differences in the population, they believed that the Tutsi, for example, tended to be taller and, you know, finer featured and lighter skinned. And of course, all of this is being interpreted through this lens at the time, this very sort of pseudoscientific lens of European scientific racism, right? I should be very clear about that. They began to see the Tutsi as what they considered the natural rulers of Rwanda. And this was reinforced by the tendency for a lot of the European visitors to the country at that time to look at the monarchy that existed in Rwanda and be very impressed by the monarchy. It was primarily dominated by the Tutsi. And so this led them to believe that, yeah, I mean, the Tutsi not just the natural rulers of Rwanda because of the monarchy, but also because of how they look and how they behave and so on. They actually started to intertwine it with sort of like biblical mythology. And they came to believe that the Tutsi were the semi-Caucasian descendants of the biblical figure Ham. And so that too sort of fed in then to this mythology that the Tutsi therefore were the, somehow the natural rulers in the country. And so they invested in them and they gave them positions of power within the colonial administration and so on. 
And of course, all of this happened at the expense of what the colonizers deemed to be the kind of true African counterparts, all of this, the Hutu and the Twa. Over time, you know, they were discriminated against. The Tutsi came to be seen sometimes as colonial agents, right? As well as, you know, having formerly dominated the monarchy. And that this in turn then gave rise to all of these ethnic tensions within the country that then gradually sort of moved as Rwanda moved into independence through the first and second presidential republics, that this just led to a kind of building of ethnic tensions and resentments that ultimately made it possible for these Hutu power extremists to convince the population to participate in these genocidal atrocities against the Tutsi minority. And so that's kind of a common overview that you will hear, you'll see, and there's elements of truth within it, but obviously it's also a lot more complicated than that as well. It's fascinating to hear because this is something that you see in quite a lot of regions of the world where you've had colonial powers trying to really force their own systems of belief, their own systems of religion, and of course, to try and gain power in the country. It's almost an old-fashioned divide and conquer mechanism. You see it in Haiti, for example, if you go back to the Maluto elites, this idea that you have this lighter-skinned elite minority that will work with the former colonial power to continue to control the country. And it sounds like that's something that we have here in Rwanda. But when does all of this start to come to a head? Is it exactly as you say, when we start to come to the end of that colonial period, when the United Nations mandates in the early 1960s that Belgium must leave, that Rwanda will become an independent country? Is it at this point, without that colonial support, that you see the Tutsis start to be turned against and pushed out of the country? Yeah, I mean, it sort of ebbs and flows. There's definitely a period in the late 1950s, um, I should say as well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Rwanda is not unique in having had this really negative encounter. Colonialism, you know, trying to find ways of not just dividing the population into easily quantifiable and understandable sort of communities, but, but then in also working in ways to turn these communities against each other whenever it was politically expedient for them to do so, right? I come from Canada. We have a similar history there with our First Nations Inuit and Métis communities and the way that they were dealt with by the French, by the British, right? This is a, a very familiar colonial card to play, I think, in a lot of different contexts internationally. But in Rwanda, I mean, yes, it, in some ways it does lead to periods of heightened ethnic tension and even extreme political violence. It's not sort of just the colonial administration, though, that's necessarily responsible for a lot of that. I mean, missionary groups in Rwanda also played a part, particularly in the way that they often educated Rwandans. For example, a lot of the mission schools that were created in Rwanda, starting from around 1904 or so, they educated the Tutsi and the Hutu differently, right? The Hutu, they wanted to know just enough to be able to like read the Bible and to be farmers and this kind of thing. The Tutsi, of course, were educated more for like administrative positions, positions in government and this kind of thing. And so there was a clear divide in how they treated people. And this fed through into the colonial administration. But one of the things that began to happen with all of this education is that there was a sort of emerging middle class of Hutu in sort of the 30s, the 40s, going into the 50s, who coming into contact with European education, were exposed to ideals around human rights and pan-Africanism and, you know, and all of these, these really important ideas. But the way that they then interpreted these against the backdrop of, say, everyday life in Rwanda, over time, you know, had sometimes quite extremist elements to it. The Tutsi, for example, this in part comes from colonization and the way that the Tutsi were being understood at that moment in time, particularly by the Belgian colonizers, was that they were foreign invaders, right? Descendants of Ham. They would have come from Ethiopia. They would have immigrated into Rwanda 
you know, they weren't native Rwandans in the same way that the Hutu and the Twa were often regarded as native Rwandans. And so as this emerging middle class of the Hutu began to sort of internalize these ideas, there's at moments evidence to suggest that they internalized a kind of inferiority complex almost in relation to the Tutsi. But then, of course, it also bred this resentment, right, towards them. And so as the Hutu majority then, exposed to these ideals of human rights and so on, began to push towards independence and wanting a democratic presidential republic, they did have a tendency then to view the Tutsi as an obstacle, a group of people that were going to be opposed to that. They'd want to preserve the monarchy. They'd want to preserve their right to rule in the country. And one of the ways that they dealt with that in terms of the political propaganda at the time was to frame them as outsiders, as colonizers, as, as invaders who didn't belong there. And who then, you know, needed to be pushed out. And so there are moments then, as Rwanda moved towards independence in 1959, there's what's often referred to as like the Hutu Revolution. And this is where a group of youth, especially associated with the political organization at the time known as Parma Hutu, attempted to push all of the monarchists, most of whom were Tutsi, out of the country, using violence, destroying their homes, killing their cattle, killing Tutsi as well, where they were really deemed to be a threat politically. And so we end up with a massive population of Tutsi who were living outside of the country from 1959. They had to seek refuge in other neighboring nations because it wasn't safe for them to live in Rwanda. And that in some ways set the stage for regional instability, right? And particularly in places like Burundi and Uganda, where the majority of them settled. There's then a period in 63 and 64. So this is a couple of years after independence in 1962 where some of these refugees living outside of the country militarized and decided to conduct incursions into Rwanda as a way of destabilizing the government, then led by Kaibanda and, of course, of Hutu heritage. When they began conducting these incursions, Kaibanda's response was to begin perpetrating massacres where there were small populations of Tutsi still living within the country. And so a lot of people, a lot of Tutsi were killed in 63 and 64, not necessarily for the same reasons as the violence in 1959, but, you know, associated with it, for sure. Throughout Kaibanda's time in power, it seemed whenever it was politically expedient for him to do so, he would often demonize and, and sort of stigmatize the Tutsi and had policies in place trying to limit what's called an ethnic quota, tried to limit their participation in positions of government, education, and so on, as a way of, from his perspective, kind of righting the wrongs of the colonial era, making sure that there were appropriate numbers of Hutu moving into positions of leadership across the country. And as his political leadership began to be questioned, he was accused of corruption and these kinds of things moving into the sort of early 70s. One of the ways that he tried to distract the population was by expelling Tutsi from schools. And again, there was political violence that went along with that, moving them out of positions in government, for example, in the military. And a lot of Tutsi fled again at that point and ended up living in refuge in neighboring countries, right? And so there are a number of little moments where this kind of ethnic tension was, was used to sort of whip up anti-Tutsi hatred, incite political violence against them. So that's the kind of historical, colonial, cultural side to this. And of course, we're bringing in the political elements here. And so it leads me to ask, as we're moving through this Cold War period, how does the Cold War impact these divides and this politics in Rwanda during this time? Is it a matter of the, the warring factions of the Cold War in that bipolar world? Are they really trying to incite and to set a flame under this hatred more? Does it start to, to move into ideological divisions? It's difficult to say because, again, I mean, the actual violence, the physical violence that came around for all this, it ebbed and flowed. I mean, you talk to Tutsi 
who lived in the country during this period, because some Tutsi, of course, were able to stay where they were living in rural communities, where they were themselves quite poor, you know, that kind of thing. They didn't have any immediate ties to the monarchy that had ruled Rwanda prior to 1962. They could stay in the country. It wasn't necessarily the easiest life. And people who lived through the Kaibanda and later the Habyarimana regimes, I mean, they will talk about it as, yeah, it was very difficult. You know, you needed a special permit to be able to travel and you couldn't get an education beyond sort of basic elementary education. Um, it was really hard for them as well. Like, you know, moving into the military, moving into government, there just there were so many limited opportunities for them. And a lot of people would give up and actually, again, would end up going outside of the country to get education, you know, drawing on those links they had with people living in the diaspora. But amid all of that, it was relatively peaceful for them. You know, in the day to day, these occasional periods where things would kind of flare up, the day to day, they could live peaceful lives. You know, they could have their small businesses, they could take care of their farms or they could take care of their cattle and they could survive. One of the things you'll often hear from people when they start talking about the genocide when it happened in 1994, like when it really escalated, was it completely caught them by surprise because even though there was a civil war from 1990 to 1994, for a lot of people, that civil war was kind of off in the north. They knew it was happening and they could see tensions around them and so on, but it was over there, you know? It caught them by surprise when it suddenly the violence really escalated and the Hutu power extremists were then mobilizing youth in their communities to go out and kill Tutsi civilians. It really caught people by surprise because unless they were on the kind of front lines of the civil war, unless their families have been negatively impacted by these kind of sporadic episodes of extreme political violence prior to that, didn't necessarily negatively impact the quality of their day-to-day -day lives. I don't know if I'm, I'm really answering your question, but it, it, it's quite an odd situation in the sense that, yeah, you have some people who would even go so far as saying, you know, well, Habyarimana, the president from 1973 to 1994, or Kaibanda, who was in power from 1962 to 1973, you know, they weren't really that bad to live under. Our lives were relatively okay. Because if you weren't a monarchist, if you weren't a political subversive, you could actually live your life. Yes, it was difficult. And yes, there were challenges. But people didn't necessarily see those challenges as all that different from what their neighbors who were Hutu or Twa were dealing with in the day to day. Does that make sense? It does. But what doesn't make sense then is, is what triggers this bout of extreme violence. Violence like had not been seen in that country. Like you say, there was periodic bouts of violence against the Tutsi people. There were murders that were ethnically motivated. And this is something that had been going on in the country for a very long time. But when we see what happens in 1994, it's a very, very different story. And so is this related to the civil war that is going on at this period of time? Yeah, I think the civil war helps to explain it to some extent. But again, I mean, it's not as simple as the civil war. It's not as simple as ethnicity. Um, there's an economic crisis happening in the country. I see. Starting in about the late 1980s, the prices of a lot of cash crops, coffee and tea collapse, right? And so there's a lot of like landless, unemployed young men in the country, especially. There's then, you know, Javier Imana, the president at the time, his popularity was waning. He was becoming more and more corrupt. Part of this may have been his own doing as president, but he was also part of a very powerful political network associated with actually the family of his wife, Agathenziga, right? He certainly wasn't, I think, solo operator as president. He was answerable to a very, very powerful Hutu family. And, you know, they also had their own sort of political ambitions and, and things that were helping to really, I think, diminish the effectiveness of his government at a moment where I think a lot of people in Rwanda were really hoping for more stable leadership, right? And so it's kind of almost like, a, I mean, the term that Jean-Paul Camonio uses is it's like a perfect storm. There's the civil war that's 
sort of, again, ebbing and flowing since 1990. There's the economic crisis. There's these ethnic tensions. And politically, I mean, this is, I think, another thing that maybe makes what happens in 1994 with the genocide quite distinct from what we've maybe seen at moments previously in Rwandan history. Politically, there is a real genuine threat to government that is predominantly Hutu. And that threat just happens to be predominantly Tutsi. And that is the Rwandan Patriotic Front. This is the political party that took shape in Uganda, sort of pulling in members from these different diaspora Tutsi communities located around the Great Lakes region in Africa. For years, have been trying to figure out a diplomatic solution to ensure their right to return to Rwanda, right, as Rwandan citizens, people who were born there and so on. But of course, Javier Imana, I mean, and he used all sorts of excuses. The big one was that, you know, Rwanda is a very densely populated country and there simply wasn't room to allow all these refugees to come back. He kept refusing them this right to return. And finally, they settled on a military solution. And that military solution was to invade from Uganda into northern Rwanda in 1990. It triggered a civil war. And the nature of that civil war and the nature of the complaints that the RPF was sort of raising against the Javier Imana regime were taken seriously by the international community. And for that reason, the international community was willing to engage in, in peace talks around this idea of having a power sharing agreement between the RPF and the Javier Imana regime. And that combined with the violence of the civil war really radicalized some people and especially within Javier Imana's government. And that's where the term Hutu power, right? The Hutu power extremists, this is where they came from, this, this early period of the civil war. So politically, there's also something very different happening in the early 1990s compared to what we would have seen around earlier periods of ethnic tension and bloodshed in the country. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And together we bring you Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. This month we're telling the stories of four phenomenal queens of England, like Athelflaed, who successfully captured Darby, Leicester and York from the Vikings. Or Emma of Normandy, who married two kings and was mother to two more kings. How about Anna Bohemia, who advocated for peace during the Hundred Years' War? Or Margaret of Anjou, who led Lancastrian forces at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Queens, you gotta love them. And we've picked out four crackers to explore for you in September. Join us for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so this sounds like it's a tinderbox ready to ignite. And is it fair to say that the events that happened on April 6th, 1994, when a a plane carrying the president and his counterpart was shot down, killing everyone on board, is it fair to say that this was the match that set this tinderbox alight? Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly common interpretation in terms of scholarship. Javier Imano's death on the 6th of April, the shooting down of his plane, is often sort of presented as this trigger for genocide. But I mean, there's been some recent research that suggests that, I mean, yes, it absolutely had an impact, but the decision to actually then commit genocide was actually made a number of days later. So I think it's accurate to say that, yes, when Javier Imana died on the 6th of April, that certainly created the opportunity maybe that the Hutu-powered extremists needed to take over the government, right? And certainly, I mean, the genocide was planned in the sense that, you know, there were youth militia groups known as Interhamwe and Buzumugandi located across the country that had been trained to kill, trained to defend their homes, and and possibly even trained to kill civilians, Tutsi civilians in large numbers, right? There's evidence of that coming to light with the UN mission that was in the country at that time as part of the peace negotiations. It's called UNAMIR. They were starting to hear rumors and, and see evidence that, you know, these youth militias were being trained to kill as early as I think it was November of 1993, right? So The genocide was very much planned, but that decision to commit genocide, it seems, might have actually come a few days later when they realized that, okay, we've taken over the government, but with the RPF now renewing its declaration of war and committed to a military victory over this interim government that was taking shape, the only way that that interim government of Hutu power extremists could hold power long term would be to wipe out not only the RPF, but any of the RPF supporters, right? And so that's when the decision was made to wipe out the Tutsi minority across the country. So, you know, the genocide was very much planned, but in terms of the trigger, it's likely the realization, I think, that they stood to lose the war, not just the peace negotiations now, but the actual war, if they didn't commit to this very, very extreme plan to completely annihilate the Tutsi people within the country. So this was about Hutu regime survival and ensuring the the balance of dominance and power in the country. And so when it comes to the shooting down of the president's plane, was it the RPF that shot this plane down? Do we know the circumstances behind this? Or was this a moment of political convenience to demonize the group? Again, that's a really, really tough question because there's quite a bit of debate about this. And I mean, it's a very, very politicized topic as well. I mean, there's some people who argue it was the RPF that shot down the plane. There's also people on the other side arguing that, no, it wasn't the RPF. It was actually Javier Imano's own people. It was these Hutu power extremists, and again, especially associated with his wife's family, who basically, because he was willing to engage in these peace negotiations and because he was considering committing to a power sharing agreement with the RPF, that they finally just decided that no, you know, Kakyari Mana had to go. And I think academic consensus at this point is still quite divided on the subject. It's 
Yeah, I'm, I'm maybe not the right person to answer that question because I haven't spent a lot of time looking specifically at the evidence surrounding the plane crash and who would have been responsible. But there's a lot of debate on both sides. It's a real, I mean, it's one of the big debates, I would say, around the Rwandan genocide that, that academics are still quite immersed in. Well, that's interesting in itself that this history is still in many ways left to be written and still unfolding. But from your comments, Erin, one thing that, that has shocked me is that when it actually comes down to this genocide of husbands killing wives, of neighbours turning on each other, of extreme violence, extreme sexual violence, this isn't a spontaneous breaking down of society. This isn't even anarchy. This is a meticulously organised, government-supported, militia-based violence that they've been trained to do. That's almost unbelievable. This is something that has been in the political planning for some time if there are people who are being trained in, in how to kill civilians. Yeah. And I mean, again, one of the things that I think made the genocide so effective, if I can use that term, um, was that, yes, I mean, there were, again, the Hutu power extremists after the invasion in 1990, they began investing in hate media across the country. They began investing in the creation of these youth militia groups. Initially, the youth militias were allegedly created with the purpose of helping people to defend their homes against the RPA advance. But it becomes clear over time that the purpose of these militias changes, right? And that's where training youth to potentially kill civilians begins to come into the picture. And that was around sort of mid to late 1993, most likely, from my understanding of the primary source material. But also, in addition to that, I mean, making sure that these militia groups had the necessary weaponry, right? Because we, Rwanda, the genocide in 1984 tends to be referred to as a kind of low-tech genocide, right? It's not, you know, well, gas We're talking about machetes, aren't we? This is a very visceral hand-to-hand -hand fighting slaughter of people or herding people into buildings and setting those buildings alight. Yeah, and a very intimate one as well. I mean, it was often people in their own communities who were being killed by people they knew really well, business partners, family members, you know, and this kind of thing. And again, that's a very different quality to the violence than we maybe see in other genocides. I mean, the obvious one being the Holocaust, right, where it was almost more bureaucratic, at least in terms of once the death camps were created. I know the early phases of the Holocaust were quite intimate in terms of the Holocaust by bullets. But in Rwanda, no, I mean, it was a very, very intimate, close contact form of killing in most cases. And not everybody participated, but there was certainly a lot of propaganda encouraging people, inciting people to participate, especially once Javier Imana had been killed. But there was also a lot of social pressure and political pressure. Um, I worked for a while in the prisons in Rwanda interviewing people who'd been convicted of genocide-related crimes. And one of the things that became really clear from these conversations was that people weren't always motivated by ethnic hatred in the way that we might expect when we think of genocide, right? Um, and again, this is why when I talk about ethnicity, I will say, oh, yes, it's often talked about as one of the real drivers of, of the genocidal violence. It certainly was important. But when you talk to people who were convicted of genocide-related crimes, sometimes they'll talk about the Tutsi in ways that suggest that they've internalized some of that propaganda, some of that anti-Tutsi propaganda. But often what they're more sort of preoccupied with in the way that they talk about how they came to be perpetrators is the social pressure that surrounded them and the need as this violence escalated to be seen as good Hutu. Because if you weren't, you could also become a victim of the violence. If you were identified as a political subversive because you spoke against the violence, you tried to rescue people, 
you know, you could end up being killed as well. And the fact that after Javier Imana died, I mean, literally in the hours after Javier Imana's plane was shot down, so much of the violence that people were hearing about on the radio and seeing on the television and so on was actually violence towards political moderates in the country. We know now that the Hutu weren't being killed. The political moderates obviously don't begin to number the number of Tutsis who were killed in the genocide, but they knew that Hutu were being killed too, where they were perceived to be politically subversive and going against this Hutu power agenda. And so they often talked about how important it was to be seen in their communities as good Hutu. And so that meant if you were asked to join the roadblocks or somebody came to you and wanted you to join a hunt or go to somebody's house and participate in an attack, you couldn't necessarily navigate that and get out of that in any kind of reasonable way without putting your own life in danger and that of your family. And so what would often happen was people would kind of succumb to that peer pressure that, and at least initially, initially they would be kind of reluctant to participate in these atrocities, but then it would become easier over time, right? And so a lot of the people who participated in the genocide Maybe there was some degree of ethnic hatred there, but it wasn't necessarily the primary motivating factor that drove them. It was fear. It was opportunism was another really big one, right? If you participate in these atrocities, you might get a better job, right? Or you get to loot the homes of the people who are being killed or, you know, take personal possessions from them, that kind of thing. So there was often also kind of an economic motive, right? In a country that's been reeling under an economic crisis for a number of years, economic motivations were really powerful for some people, especially in the rural communities where people lived off of very, very little a day. So there's a lot that kind of played into making the genocide possible on the perpetrator side of things as well. It's a lot more complex than just that sort of common explanation of, oh, it was about ancient ethnic hatreds, right? That's the, the term the media often used at the time when these atrocities were unfolding. Well, Erin, you say that the violence was unfolding. How quickly did this violence unfold and how long did it last? That depends on region by region in a lot of ways. I mean, there are moments where the violence erupted almost instantaneously. So literally, you know, within hours of the radio reporting, for example, that Javier Imana's plane had been shot down, that he'd been killed. One of the first things that the Hutu power extremists did in terms of that hate propaganda was to say that the Tutsi were responsible, the RPF was responsible for Javier Imana's death, and that Hutu should avenge their president's death, right? So inciting people to, to pick up arms. So there are moments around the country where hearing that people spontaneously decided to commit massacres, right? And so one of the first things that we see happen often in many communities was, well, okay, where there were really prominent Tutsi business people or, or Tutsi who were in other ways really significant in the communities and perhaps people were resentful towards of their wealth, that sort of thing. These would be the first people that would be killed in these kinds of spontaneous killings. But in other communities, it took longer. People had, you know, really waited to see what was happening and Sometimes it was because of a political leader, maybe at the level of the municipalities, sort of saying, no, 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 like, I don't endorse these killings. But in other cases, I mean, generally, people just sort of rallied around each other. And it took the presidential guard or the military coming in and almost at gunpoint sort of forcing people to commit massacres for civilians to then get involved in the violence, right? Because again, these were really tight-knit, intimate communities. Many of these people, they've been living together for generations. They've maybe intermarried had businesses together, they shared in building each other's homes. You can't just turn people against each other instantly. And in a lot of cases, it took a lot of pressure to, to convince people. So in some places, it took a couple of weeks. In terms of then how long the genocide would last, it really depended on where in the country you're talking about. The RPF, for example, um, through the peace negotiations were based in Kigali. They had troops in Kigali when the genocide began. And so after a couple of weeks, they'd more or less wrested control of the city. 
So the genocide there was extremely intense just by virtue of the population density and so on. And that's where a lot of the political moderates were killed as well. But it didn't last that long because the RPF was able to take control and enforce a state of peace, if you can call it that. But then the rural communities might take longer. In terms of the length of the genocidal violence, the region of Rwanda that was actually the hardest hit would have been the western part of Rwanda. Um, In the West, I mean, this was partly because the Hutu power extremists, as they fled Kigali, they moved first to Gitarama and then made a run for the Democratic Republic of Congo. So fleeing into that kind of Western border area of Rwanda. So it was partly that, but there was also a French, a so-called humanitarian mission, Operation Turquoise, that was put on the ground during the genocide. The French had, for a fairly long period of time been aligned with the Javier Imana regime and had certain sympathies, I think, with the interim government as well. And the presence of those French troops in that western region created a kind of what was called a safe corridor that the Hutu power extremists could use to flee to the DRC. But along the way, the massacres of Tutsi civilians continued. And I mean, a lot of the communities in that region, it's a region where I've worked quite a bit over the years. I mean, the Tutsi survivors there will say straight out that the French aided and were complicit in a lot of those killings. So the killings, because of the French presence in the region, continued pretty much right until the RPF declared its full military victory in July of 1994. So, you know, you talk about the kind of rough hundred days of the genocide. That was really in the western part of the country. In other parts of the country, the genocide was stopped more quickly. And how do we know the French were, were so heavily involved there and not so passively either? I mean, it's not like the French have a particularly good reputation in terms of their colonial rule or, or their meddling across the African continent. And we still see that playing out across the Sahel today, and in fact, right at this moment in time. But do we know for a fact that the French, I mean, they weren't there in a UN capacity, this is a, a national military capacity, that they were actually aiding and, and abetting? I would say in terms of testimonial evidence, there's quite a bit of that. And I know, I mean, in a court of law, right, testimonial evidence is often regarded with suspicion, at least unless there's other kinds of corroborating evidence to reinforce it. But the clearest example of French complicity in the atrocities would be probably around Bissacero, which is a community in the west of Rwanda. It's kind of up in the mountains. And it's become quite famous as an example of resistance, Tutsi resistance uh, towards Hutu power extremists. And with Bissacero then, basically um, a handful of, of Tutsi elders who had a high degree of military experience basically encouraged people to come up into the mountains, you know, be an easily defensible position. And they set up there. They didn't really have much in the way of weapons, but they sort of trained people. There's a wonderful book about this by Oscar Gasana for those who are interested in reading further. But they basically trained civilians who, who would come there seeking refuge from the Hutu power extremists in hand-to-hand combat and, you know, how to rush into a group of Indrahamwe to confuse them so that they couldn't use their guns, they couldn't really use their machetes, and, and they just overwhelmed them with bricks and stones and whatever other materials they could get their hands on. And over time then, as they managed to fight back, they were able to take weapons off the people that they killed and gradually built a more sustained and more powerful resistance. And I don't remember the precise date that it happened. I'd, I'd have to go back and check my notes. But a lot of the people that I've interviewed who survived from Bissacero or the surrounding area associate the arrival of French troops at the particular hill in Bissacero, where they were all waiting out the genocide as a moment where they were basically betrayed. They were told by the French troops that they were under French protection if they gave up their weapons, you know, and so on, and agreed to stand down and the conflict with, you know, the surrounding communities. 
that there would be no more killings. And so they agreed. And I mean, there's, there's photographic evidence of the French meeting on the hill even. Once the French had collected the weapons, they left. And shortly after, the Interhelmi returned. And they wiped out, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of the people who had survived up until that point. It's a horrible, horrible story. But that's certainly one of the examples that people in the region will often point to as a moment where it's like, no, clearly the French were there. Clearly they told people these things. There's all these different survivors who corroborate this. And the French had weapons. They were there. They could have stopped the killings and they chose not to. So I would say that's probably a classic example. But this leaves us with a looming question, Erin. You mentioned that the United Nations are in the country. What are they doing at this point? What are the peacekeepers doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, Unamir, I think the commander, Romeo Dallaire, would probably agree with this. It was a flawed mission right from the get-go. I mean, he's done his memoirs, and there's been various studies as well that have sort of revealed the extent to which Unamir was created with a very limited mandate, without really the power to fire in defense of civilian lives or in other ways tried to protect civilians as they came under attack. So their presence was primarily one of overseeing the terms of the Arusha peace agreement as it was being implemented. Once the interim government committed to this plan of genocide, they really didn't have the power to do anything, at least in terms of their sort of official mandate. Individually, I think there were moments where members of the Unimir mission did do what they could to protect Tutsi who came to them for help. Likewise, you know, there were embassies in the country, the U.S. embassy, that did what they could to help people evacuate from Rwanda, not just their own civilians like American civilians, but, you know, helping political moderates and, and Tutsi civilians to leave where they could. But I mean a drop in the bucket compared to what might have been possible had Unimir been given a mandate to protect civilian lives. And again, I mean, this is something I think Dallaire's talked about at length, that if he'd had even 500 troops, I think is the number he's used, that had that mandate, that they actually probably would have been able to stop a lot of the violence because, yes, you know, the Hutu power extremists were very committed to this idea of genocide and it's been planned for, for some time, but at the same time, faced with, military force. They often weren't that well trained and they perhaps didn't also have the stomach for this kind of fighting, right? It's one thing killing civilians, it's another thing being in battle with an armed and trained and disciplined combatant group. So it's understandable why you would think that way, you know? And of course, peacekeeping is about having impartiality in the country. We have to talk about the kind of founding pillars of UN peacekeeping here. It's about documenting the atrocities so that charges can be brought later. And of course, we will talk about the truth and reconciliation, the justice process that is put into place after the genocide. But UN peacekeeping does change as a result of this. It takes a long time. It takes other genocides in places like Srebrenica, which have, you know, quite disturbing echoes from what you're talking about here today to to create more robust peacekeeping mandates, um, many of which we, we see today, but also, of course, this pillar of the responsibility to protect. You know, the United Nations changes its entire system to provide a new justification for why nation states can legitimately go to war. It's not just self-defense anymore, but if a nation state does not fulfill its primary obligation to protect its civilians, then the international community can come together to, well, in many ways, violate the the sovereignty of that country to protect those civilians. Now, that, of course, has many of its own legacies in places like Libya and is, to many, a bit of a dirty word today with R2P and that responsibility to protect. But you can see those lasting legacies of Rwanda, of Bosnia coming through at that period of time. But with all that being said, this isn't uh, much of a comfort to those in Rwanda at that period of time. So when does the violence end? And when do we move through to this period of trying to bring justice for the victims? 
I mean, guess technically people would say that it was the military victory of the RPF that formally stopped the genocide. But again, I mean, this is a slightly tricky question because the political instability in Rwanda and especially in the West, I mean, that continued for years. There were moments where Hutu power extremists who'd managed to make it to the DRC, they conducted incursions into the country, they killed civilians. And I think the official date that people recognize as being the end of the genocide is about the 17th, 18th of July. This is when the RPF declared its military victory. But it's important to note that the political violence continued for a time, especially in the western part of the country, because there were all these Hutu power extremists now based in the DRC and living in these refugee camps. Again, they used the camps to militarize people and, and continued to conduct incursions over the next couple of years, during which more civilian lives were lost, right? So the political instability, that kind of threat to, to peace and security in the country would continue through two Congo wars, right? And really, I think a state of actual stability in the country wasn't realized much before, probably about 2000, 2003 even. There was just so much turmoil in the country politically. And during that period, you know, the infrastructure in the country, everything else was really, really slow to recover, understandably. I mean, you can only imagine like the challenges that a transitional government faces in the aftermath of genocide, you know, in terms of the numbers of people killed, but also that you mentioned the high rates of sexual violence, the very, very widespread rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic experiences among the population. It was a number of years before, I think, realistically, the people, the government were ready to invest in any kind of actual transitional justice mechanisms. But when they were ready, it took various forms. I mean, the Rwandan government decided to pursue a policy of what they called at the time universal accountability. And basically, this is, this is very different from what we see in a lot of other genocide-affected contexts in that rather than just going for the big fish, you know, the, those individuals who are deemed to have the highest degree of criminal responsibility for the atrocities, the Rwandan government decided that they wanted to try to prosecute everybody who had any degree of criminal responsibility. And so they broke criminal responsibility down into four categories, ranging from what were seen as the most serious crimes, mass killings, sexual violence, and so on, right down to looting and informing on people who were in hiding, for example. And... They arrested as many people as they could on the basis of allegations, usually coming out of the community, about the kinds of crimes they committed across these four categories. And then they began trying to prosecute them. And so the really high level individuals were either sent to the International Criminal Tribunal that was created by the UN and with support from various governments to deal with the really, really significant, like internationally renowned perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide. But then the Rwandan national court system, as soon as it was ready, as soon as it had recovered to the point where it could start to prosecute people, they also took on a number of the high-level perpetrators. And then at the community level, to ensure accountability in each and every community across Rwanda that had been negatively impacted by the genocide, the government also invested in what they called gachacha. And this is, it roughly translates to kind of justice on the grass. And this is basically a group of community judges, lay people judges, often elders, respected members of the community who had no degree of criminal responsibility for the genocide. They would sit and they would listen to the allegations. They would listen to people's testimonies and make decisions then about whether or not a person merited release, they were innocent, or whether they had in fact committed these atrocities. And Pichacha addressed something like 1.9 million allegations, charges related to the genocide, not 1.9 million people, but cases, because of course a case could be brought against somebody and then a few years later more information could get forward, more cases could go to Gachacha. 
And in some ways, it was kind of ingenious because it's widespread legal accountability of a kind, reparative justice of a kind, and drawing upon a format that was quite familiar to Rwandans. Chikachacha historically had been used probably at least since the 16th century in the country, or maybe the 17th century, to address, you know, community interpersonal conflicts and these kinds of things. It was a long-standing dispute resolution mechanism within Rwandan communities. So it was a format very familiar to Rwandans and one that they could see play out right in front of them. You needed a quorum to hold a trial of about 100 people, ideally. And so, you know, people would come and they would participate, they would watch. And yeah, it was one way of trying to promote a kind of accountability, unlike I think anything we've seen in any other genocide-affected context internationally. And how successful was this uh, rebuilding a, a stable society, a society that can move past this together and to build a more cohesive, stable nation? Yeah, again, I mean, that's a real point of debate in the scholarship. There are some scholars, and certainly the Rwandan government's position is that Gachacha was extremely successful and it has reconciled the population and they have moved past these allegations, these resentments. You know, it is now a post-ethnic society. We are all Rwandans, right? That's certainly how the government regards the situation at present. But there are a number of scholars over the years who've done really in-depth studies of Gachacha. Um, most notably probably would be the work of Bert Ingaleri. And it's complicated. I mean, for a country, for people to move past genocide, right? That's a pretty tall order in the first place. I suspect a lot of us are capable of it. You know what I mean? Like you've gone through an experience that traumatic your closest loved ones, friends, family, business associates, etc., have all been murdered. And so recently, Erin, I mean, this was less than 30 years ago. Well, precisely. Like, I mean, how an individual moves past that is... It's beyond me. I don't know the answer to that. So I think we need to be really careful in managing our expectations, right? But it was hard. I mean, as you would expect, it was really hard for people to sit there and listen to these stories. And especially where there was often this tension between the accused perpetrators who we're told that, you know, well, if you confess, if you if you give information about where the bodies of your victims are buried, for example, and who else participated in these atrocities with you, you could get maybe a reduced sentence and these kinds of things. I think a lot of survivors had the expectation, certainly a lot of the people I've interviewed over the years had the expectation that this would lead to a kind of airing of the truth and missing and murdered loved ones would be found. They'd be able to rebury them with respect, you know, that there'd be, and that in and of itself maybe could lead to a kind of personal healing for a lot of people. But the reality in the trials, I think often, not always, but often was that the perpetrators still lied or they didn't give up as much information as they could. And in the process of then talking about the crimes they did admit to or that they were forced to acknowledge, I mean, it was horrific. This is incredibly intimate, close contact killing. It was often very graphic. There was often an almost performative quality to it, like especially where Tutsi elites were concerned, especially beautiful women, like they were just killed, like they were mutilated in just horrible, horrible ways. In some communities, I mean, it was a period of months and at least once a week you're sitting there and you're listening to this. It opened a lot of wounds. It kept the wounds raw for people. And then if people weren't satisfied with the outcome, if they decided the judges had been too lenient, for example, or a person was allowed to be released back into their community on the basis of time served, right? It was it was hard for people. There were also moments where Gachacha created conflict in a community. One of the communities where I've worked, the person who was responsible for organizing Gachacha and sort of overseeing it at the district level, he was basically attacked with his wife. Somebody threw grenades at them because they were upset with the work that they were doing for Gachacha, right? So there were also moments where it really created problems in a community. And Gachacha formally concluded in 2013 
And a lot of the Rwandans I knew at that point just kind of almost breathed a sigh of relief. Because it's like, it's done now. And, and now we can start to focus on other things and we won't keep hearing the stories. We won't. And again, maybe that's unrealistic as well. Because a lot of the survivors I know, it's hard for them not to talk about what they went through during the genocide. Of Understandably, course. it's part of how they process, right? But certainly Gachacha, I think, kept a lot of those tensions right at the surface. So can we say that it's successfully reconciled people? I mean, I think in the first instance, I don't know how possible that is, right? Or whether it's realistic to expect that of something transitional justice related. Um, scholars like Kirsten Dowdy have argued that, you know, these are just inherently really messy, complicated processes. And it's perhaps unfair to expect everyone to experience catharsis and healing from them, right? But people, I think, are living together, which is the important thing. Maybe not always trusting each other and maybe not always free from the fear that these kinds of violence could overwhelm the country again, right? Because even though earlier periods of ethnic and political violence in the country were maybe very different from the genocide in 1994, most Rwandans who are alive today, I mean, youth aside, obviously, they've experienced a number of different periods of violence. They know that it can happen again. And I think People don't want to see that happen genuinely on all sides of the conflict. People don't want to see that happen and they'd much rather live in peace. But I think they know it's a possibility given the right circumstances. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for putting the Rwandan genocide into its proper broader historical context and to informing us about the struggle that continues in Rwanda to this day. Tell us, where can we read more about this history? Where can we read more of your work? Well, in terms of my work, I have a book, Negotiating Genocide in Rwanda, The Politics of History, that came out in 2017. And that is grounded primarily in interviews that I conducted with Rwandans from different sides of the conflict. That's partly why, I mean, I talk about the genocide in the way that I do, sort of acknowledging, you know, people who are identified as perpetrators, but also survivors, and of course, people who cross those boundaries as well. But there's a great deal of work. It's a bit like the Holocaust. Rwanda has been really widely studied, which is wonderful in some ways. That also means it's a pretty tall order. There's some phenomenal work being done by Rwandan scholars, although it's very challenging for them because, of course, there's this political pressure, quite strong political pressure in Rwanda these days to speak about the genocide in a very particular light. But yeah, I mean, it is, I think, important to note the challenges for Rwandans and for international researchers alike in studying the genocide. I mean, as with many genocides, as with many highly politicized topics, this is a situation where the government that's in power today wants to promote a particular understanding of the genocide. For example, I mean, even how you talk about the genocide, the label that you use, in Rwanda, the preferred official parlance is the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. And they clearly highlighting that, you know, the Tutsi are the primary victims of these atrocities. Survivors organizations that are aligned with the government, they use this label and, and you know, they really assert that everybody should use this label as well. But of course, it makes some people uncomfortable, not because they don't want to acknowledge the Tutsi were the primary victims, but because, again, it gets into these ethnic tensions, right, where you're only recognizing one victim group. And they may be the main victim group, but there were other forms of political violence that happened concurrently with the genocide. And to not acknowledge that broader range of atrocities, I mean, there are quite a few scholars, there are quite a few Rwandans who fear that, again, that's feeding into these ethnic tensions in ways that can be potentially dangerous down the line. And the pressures then that come along with how you talk about the genocide, what you acknowledge as part of the genocide, there's certain topics around the RPF military advance and the prospect that they may have committed atrocities against Hutu civilians in some of the communities as they wrested control of the country. I mean, it's completely taboo to talk about this in a meaningful way in Rwanda today. 
So yeah, it, for people who don't hold that official line in talking about the genocide, there can be really negative consequences from attacks on social media. Sorry, I mean verbal attacks. I should be clear about that. Verbal attacks on social media and in public talks that you maybe give. But it can also mean people deal with research access being cut off, right? They'll be told you can't do research on the genocide anymore. You can't come back to Rwanda anymore. And yes, I mean, that's quite inconvenient for foreign researchers. But the other reality of this is that often, I include myself in this category, we rely, our research relies very much on Rwandan researchers, right? Assistants, translators, transcribers, and so on, that we work very closely with in the work that we do. So while it may be inconvenient for foreign researchers to be told, okay, well, you can't go back and do this work. I think we also always have to be mindful about the Rwandans who make that work possible and what it means for them on the ground. The consequences for them where they don't speak about the genocide in the right way or where they're seen as feeding into a narrative that contradicts the preferred official narrative in the country, they risk much more serious consequences, such as imprisonment. Eventually, you know, some of them end up leaving the country. Then they worry about the family that remains, right? So there could be pretty serious consequences on that side where people go against that official narrative. Well, Erin, thank you so much for your time, for bringing us this vital, important history and for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you for hosting. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.